Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. It is Friday, September 3rd. On this episode, we'll dig into some playoff-related topics, including an increasingly interesting battle for the NL East. We'll take a look at Hugh Darvish's recent struggles and try to figure out if there's anything more than just injury problems going on with his recent slide. We'll also dig into Cody Bellinger's disappointing injury-impacted 2021 season, and we'll get to some non-playoff topics as well, taking a look back at the Francisco Lindor trade, talking about the general direction of Cleveland at this point in time. Where should they go, given the way their 2021 season has played out? We'll also talk about a few prospect-related news items and recent debuts as well. But Keith, let's get started with the NL East battle. The Phillies, I know you talked about them a few weeks ago when Eric Carabell stepped in for me on this show. Is this real? Are the Phillies actually going to close in on Atlanta and can they be a legitimate playoff threat? I'm looking at this team and I expect them to usually be an above average offensive club. I think a lot of this comes back to whether or not the back end starters and the bullpen come through for them. And that bullpen has been an Achilles heel for them for several years now. It's not a very good bullpen. I mean, they tried to change some of the personnel from last year. I think by now, if you look back, look at where they are now versus where they were at the start of the pandemic season, they've turned over a decent amount of the personnel, but that's not – last year's was just historically awful, um, not helped by the 60-game season. And instead, they're just kind of garden variety, not good right now. Um, You know, and it's not – it is – a slightly above league average offense. It probably should be better. They should be uh, a better run scoring team than they have been. Uh, It does feel like quite a shame that they may be potentially wasting a really good, healthy Bryce Harper year, especially given how much they've invested in him. But I think ultimately if this team doesn't make the playoffs, it's going to be, it's going to lie at the, on the pitching staff. And the fact is that just this organization for about 10 years now has it, really done a great job of drafting and or uh, or I guess I should say or signing um, or especially developing players right I think they've actually found some of the right players on the international market and those guys have not developed for various reasons and their drafts for a long time were really not very productive and even guys who got into the system who appeared to be heading on the right track I'm thinking of Scott Kingery for example uh, or even Alec Baum who was so good last year and then was sent down this year you know what? I mean, it, and there's an overhaul coming, right? The Phillies just made a bunch of changes in their uh, in their player development department. But what you're seeing now, a little bit on the offense, especially on the pitching staff, is just the result of of years of of it not working, right? The, the draft plus development side has just not produced quality big leaguers. Aaron Nola 
obviously he's a glaring exception. Aaron Nola was pretty close to a finished product when they drafted him. But when it's actually come down to trying to develop guys of their own, yeah, they've really struggled. And I think you're seeing that because that's one of the better ways to build a bullpen, right? Is your you know, Ranger Suarez. Look at Ranger Suarez, for example. That's a perfect example of he's been, I don't know, has he been their most effective reliever this year? Close to it. But, you know, he's kind of a failed starter candidate. I know he's made a couple of starts for them this year. Maybe he eventually becomes a starter, right? But he was a starter prospect who at first didn't seem to be working out as a starter. They put him in the bullpen and he's much more effective. Well, if you have a bunch of prospects like that, you'll, you're in pretty good position to end up with a good bullpen. But they didn't have those guys in the first place. They didn't have the starter prospects to fail and become relievers. And that's my sort of hindsight diagnosis. Well, I think a lot of us were saying at the time. But my hindsight diagnosis of, of where they are right now and why, yeah, they could absolutely make the playoffs. But I would say they're probably the underdogs. I think even a team that develops pitching at sort of a, an average rate would have a lot of its failed starters as successful relievers. And I don't think you right. can describe the Phillies bullpen that way. Hector Neris is a guy that they signed as an international free agent, geez, like 12, almost 12 years ago. Yeah. So he's been around seemingly forever. Uh, Bailey Falter was a fifth rounder. Uh, I think Eniel De Los Santos, they traded for him. So yeah, it's like two guys, three guys. Connor Brogdon was a guy they drafted too. That's it. Like everybody else was either a trade or a free agent they picked up from somewhere else. That's pretty bizarre to see that. And I think with Suarez, just by necessity, they're pushing him back into the rotation right now. He's pitching well for the time being, but it's really just fastball changeup with the occasional slider. He doesn't strike me as a guy. He's not going to get to the lineup three times consistently. I liked him when he was in A-ball. Um, but he was always a fastball changeup guy. And I think that's probably what it is. You could be a successful starter as a fastball changeup guy, but those two pitches have to be better than I think what Suarez is bringing. Whereas, you know, if you if he had a better break, well, some guys just can't spin the ball particularly well. Uh, and lefty, you know, we have a bias towards we want lefties to be able to spin the ball. If he had a little more of a third pitch, I would like him more as a starter. I, I'm still not saying he can't be a starter. Um but I think the odds are against him at this point. And of course, moving him to the rotation, which they're only, as far as I can tell, is really they're only doing because because of injuries. Uh, injuries and I guess ineffectiveness also of some other guys. But they'd probably rather have him in the bullpen because he's been one of their more effective relievers. Yeah, I would think that Bailey Falter is the better long-term bet than Suarez to be a successful starter at this point. Yeah, I would buy that. Um I don't know that I think either guy's really a big league starter in the long run. I would probably bet on both. You know, maybe Falter's like a fifth, sixth starter. Suarez offers a little more range of outcomes. If you told me Suarez was going to end up above replacement level, but maybe not quite average, yeah, sure. That would surprise me, I think, a little bit less. Neither one of these guys is a league average starter, and that comes back to the fact the Phillies just I mean, since Nola, they have not developed a starter, right? Spencer Howard was the closest thing, and maybe he'll get there at some point, but he's also not filling anymore, too. Um, and that is, you know, I think speaks to, it's not even necessarily the current regime. It may not even all be on the previous regime. Some of this may go back to Ruben Amaro and some of his staff, too. This is just a long-running development problem that I would say probably really since Pat Gillick left, you could see the seeds of it. And they have just, again, the proof is in the pudding, right? That ultimately, they have not developed... They have developed hitters. They've actually had hitters come in with pretty strong pedigrees and not hit. And they have not developed enough pitching overall to either provide the back-end starters that they need, so you're not relying on the Chase Andersons and the Matt Moores of the world, or 
the failed starters that we're talking about who would potentially populate a bullpen. And they did spend some money and try to bring in some outside relief help, and it hasn't really worked that great. Yeah, and I think you know, wasting a Bryce Harper season, it's not something I hear people talking a lot about, at least not in, in national baseball conversations. Maybe it's more a part of what they're talking about on the radio around Philly, but this has been a great year. It's been his best year as a national, I think, in, in most objective measures. I, I wonder, are they ever going to sustain success in Philadelphia while they have Harper at the peak? Like They don't have a lot of time. Like Harper, as great as he is, he's probably going to age really well. He's. It's kind of like the Trout situation in Anaheim. It's like, can they can they put enough around him to actually win before it's too late? Before you have you know the extra years you had to give Harper to get him, and you have to do a lot more to make the playoffs once you get to that phase. I think they could. Um, you know, if they were willing to, but it's probably going to take money at this point, right? You know, they're not going to draft and develop their way into building a contender around Bryce Harper because by that point. Bryce Harper is obviously he'll still be there, but he'll be 35, um, you know, 34, 35, somewhere in that range. And you probably don't want to wait that long, um, particularly since they keep taking high school pitchers in the first round, which I especially don't understand. Obviously, I'm not a fan of anyone who's read my book, The Inside Game, knows what I think about taking high school pitchers in the first round. The data are pretty clear. They say don't do it. It's a bad idea. Um, and the Phillies have done it the last two years. They're the only team, I think, that has taken a high school pitcher in the first round in each of the last two years. And they've done it with picks in the teens, too. So where the risk is, the opportunity cost is higher. And that ain't getting your big leaguers faster. Even if you think those guys were the best players available, that's not getting guys to the big leagues to join Bryce Harper any faster. And I don't know necessarily that it's getting you trade bait any faster either. I mean, if the goal was to try to build a contender around Bryce Harper, I think it should be. Maybe you could argue it's to build a contender around Bryce Harper and Zach Wheeler, who's also really great. Um, you should be trying to get guys who could get there bigger, that uh, faster, more quickly. That does not necessarily mean taking college guys, but it would probably give you some slight preference towards taking college guys. Or you take, if you think the best player available is a high school bat, you take him figuring you can trade him for major league help. But it just seems like and I don't know, we'll see what happens now that they've started to make some changes on the player development side, but it, it feels very siloed, just looking at it from the outside, that this is this the the Phillies factory, the different machines are not all working together right now. And that's how you end up with it's not like they took bad high school pitchers, but those are still high school pitchers in the first time in the last two years, when the major league team is so desperate for additional talent and it's going to cost a lot of money to bring in the outside help to put a winning team around Harper and Wheeler. Right. And I'm looking at the the contracts they have. I mean, Andrew McCutcheon at $20 million this year, there's an option for him for next year. I imagine he's probably gone. And if he comes back, it's at a reduced cost. So you get a little bit off the books there. But they were running a payroll over $190 million on opening day. So if they're worried about you know the luxury tax, they're not that far away from being at that level. So they can't go out and solve all their problems in free agency this offseason. They can get one player to replace McCutcheon, maybe one more guy with a couple pricey relievers coming off the books, but those that's part of the problem. You're losing two of your better relievers in a bad bullpen with Bradley and Naris being free agents too. So it just it seems like they're kind of caught in an awkward spot right now where they haven't, as you said, developed enough young talent to either complement what's on the roster by bringing those guys through the system or by trading them to get the extra players that they need. 
Let's go over to the Padres for a moment. You Darvish's struggles continue. I've seen it pretty much on every uh, highlight show I've watched over the last 24 hours. Like Breaking down, you can pick any window in the last two to three months and look at Darvish's numbers, and the ERA is gross. He's just not himself right now. Do you chalk this up entirely to health, or do you think there's something else going on with Darvish that has caused him to struggle as much as he has here these last few months? I mean, without having... I'm, to be honest, I have not been bearing down specifically on Darvish starts, but anytime a player misses time um, with any sort of injury, especially if it's a pitcher, right? He's suddenly, there's just this very sudden loss of effectiveness, like we've seen from him versus where he was when the season started. Uh, yeah, that's my first assumption, certainly, is that something is not right with him physically. Yeah, I, I hope that's wrong in the sense that we want you Darvish healthy in pitching, but you know, he's also on the, he's 35. He's got quite a bit of mileage on the arm at this point. Uh, would it be a surprise if he was starting to break down a little bit more frequently? I, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, this, he, he did start off so well too. It seemed like, I don't know if you said this two, three months ago, you think it seemed like Darvish would be the rock of the Padres rotation. We we're worried about Blake Snell. Now Blake Snell is suddenly effective. Might be the Padres most effective starter right now. And Darvish is the one we're worried about. Yeah, I mean, at the end of June, Darvish had a 2.44 ERA and a .94 WHIP. He was a Cy Young contender. It was clearly like a, a tier just behind Degrom, like everybody else. But he was in the mix as a guy that was easily their best starter and absolutely one of the best, probably five starters in the National League. Uh, I'll, I'll use the since July 3rd cutoff, 7.57 for the ERA, but a 52 to nine strikeout to walk ratio in 44 innings. Like if you struggle that way, and the problem is mostly home runs. That usually points to a command issue. If it's a command issue for a guy like Darvish, I, he, he's had some issues in the past with that, but I think the injury is the only explanation for me. I know it kind of syncs up with the window after the sticky stuff enforcement was happening. I don't get the sense that that was the reason for him because Darvish was good before all of that, right? I mean, I just... Also, yeah. Also, you you need some proof on that. Right. Obviously. And, I, you know, this, this isn't Twitter, right? We're trying to have, like, a professional <laughs> podcast here. <laughs> You know, people can go on Twitter and be like, oh, yeah, it was the sticky stuff because they don't right? I mean, that is social media. You don't have to. Nobody holds them accountable. Um, you know, we, we could be held accountable in theory, and I think we should hold ourselves accountable. And I would say in that case, show me proof. Show me evidence that Darvish was using any of that stuff. And then that 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 is the reason that that he was using that. And was always using that because, as you said, he was really effective for a long time. He was basically effective any point he was healthy for most of his career. And so now, all of a sudden, has he been using that stuff forever? I don't believe that. I think it's more likely that this is something health-related. By the way, I'd say it's not even just command for if you're becoming more homer-prone or you're giving up more hard contact or more of your pitches are, you know, if your BABIP is going up and you want to say, well, it's not just bad luck or defense could it, could there be something more to it yeah you know what if something is bothering him and he's not getting the same kind of spin on the fastball or he's not getting the same kind of life or movement on the fastball any of those things could lead to more home runs you know what if you know, he's one of the rare guys who throws a splitter for example and if something is bothering him in his hand even and he can't grip the pitch the same way and it's not getting the same kind of bottom to it well guess what a splitter that doesn't really tumble is just a bad fastball. So there's a lot of possible explanations. I'm throwing those out there also because I have not particularly been watching 
Darvish just starts and trying to mark down, you know, what I think is going on with certain pitches. So I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I think this is something that, um, you know, you spend 20 minutes with some of his pitch data and you'd probably start to see some trends emerge pretty quickly. Yeah. And I think the, the good news for the Padres, even though Darvish is struggling, they're getting Blake Snell fixed mostly by having him turf the changeup. That's been a, a big part of his turnaround. Two pitches working well for Snell for now. I, sure. I imagine you get to the offseason, you go back, you retool, you find the changeup again, or you find something else. But if it's working and it's getting him to pitch as well as he has pitched really for all of August. You need that mm-hmm. if you're the Padres because you're going to have two spots in the back potentially, depending on how Chris Paddock is pitching, where you may have to lean really heavily on your bullpen. So you need Snell to be good. You need Snell to give you innings along with Musgrove. And ideally, you get Darvish healthy. They just don't have the luxury of giving Darvish rest. And maybe that's part of the problem too. Maybe he wants to go yeah. right now. Maybe they're just saying, hey, look, we know you're not 100%, but you're better than us absolutely wrecking the bullpen just to make it to the postseason. So just an interesting thing to see him struggling this much because he looked so good in the shortened season and showed so good for the first three months of 2021. Let's talk about Cody Bellinger for a moment. I think we're we're hitting the point in the year where we're taking stock of truly bad years and wondering what went wrong. And I think similar to Darvish, like my immediate thought is, well, we know there was an injury. He had shoulder surgery. We all saw the, the arm five injury that he suffered in the postseason. I think that's it. I think that's pretty much the whole story with Bellinger. Have you seen anything else that would lead you to believe that there's more going on than health with him? No, again, it's always the safest assumption, right? Especially when a guy, you know, this is a guy who obviously he's always swung and missed a lot. That's his swing. But, you know, when suddenly he's like, he can't hit pitches he could hit before. You don't forget how to hit. It's not like he's 35 either where you say oh well okay well now it's age maybe his bat's slowing down something at his age given his track record he's just not hitting pitches he's not hitting fastballs like he hit before you don't forget how to hit a fastball um that would be terrifying if somebody did <laughs> but he's i mean he just he can't it he he can't hit anything right now but he has gone from somebody who could hit a fastball who had a couple of really good years off the fastballs to somebody who can't hit a fastball at all that to me, that's got to be injury related. That does not mean he's still hurt. Maybe he altered something in his swing. I could not tell you that from watching regular TV video of him. I would really need to like see him from the side, go to the ballpark at least, and just try to watch him compare that maybe to some video from previous years, which is what teams do. It's exactly what what teams are doing. I'm sure the Dodgers have done this, and probably my guess is they have looked at this and said, "Here's what's different," and um, for whatever reason, Bellinger's not able to go back to the way he'd been swinging previously. Maybe it's still sore. Maybe he's concerned. Like guys get worried about re-injuring a shoulder or an elbow, and it causes them to change something mechanically. It could be any of those things. But I don't believe that Corey, Cody Bellinger has suddenly forgotten how to hit. Yeah, I, I'm not on that side of the argument either. I think we're going to see a pretty nice bounce back from him in 2022. And the Dodgers, of course, just have the luxury of burying him in the bottom third of the order. They can even play him less than every day if they want to. They can kind of platoon him, sit him against the tough lefties. They have the the depth necessary to pull that off, which is just amazing. And I was thinking about this last night. I feel like, for me growing up, I became a baseball fan in the 90s, you know, as a 10-year-old watching SportsCenter, watching games, all those things. I grew up kind of hating the Yankees because they were just always good, right? Those, those amazing Yankees teams were deep into October every year. They were just an easy team to hate. 
And I feel like for someone growing up now watching baseball, the Dodgers are the Yankees. Like they are the team. Like if you're not a Dodgers fan, they're an easy enemy to have because they're just so good. Yes. Yes. Uh, I grew up a Yankee fan. So I, I, I probably shouldn't even be agreeing with you. But of course, everyone hates the team. Not only because they're the Yankees are generally very good, but because the national media can't stop fawning over them. And because ESPN puts them... I mean, if the Yankees are playing the Red Sox, ESPN cancels everything <laughs> to show their games. I mean, I worked there for a long time. Not stupid. It's like, oh, the Yankees and Red Sox are Sunday Night Baseball again. I think I'm going to have a heart attack and die from that surprise. Yeah. Okay. It's automatic. Sure. This is why people hate them. I mean, to me, that is the number one thing. If you constantly shove a team, or I guess a player, down people's throats... To the detriment of, in, you know, in this case, counting Yankees and Red Sox on one side, the 28 other teams, of course, people are going to resent those teams. And they're going to resent them more when in the case of the of both of those clubs, that they have a lot of money and they tend to do very well in free agency. They usually get who they want, not 100% of the time. But when you are constantly talking about them, you know, somebody with the Yankees sneezes and suddenly it's major news and it's more news than then you know more serious stories would be from most of the other clubs. I get it. I don't like seeing disproportionate coverage of the Yankees. I'm also fully aware if I go out and see Yankees prospects versus say going to see Tampa Bay prospects, the audience for that the column that results out of that will be commensurately larger. So it's based in reality. But I think that's the biggest reason. Like, I think, you know, nobody hates the Rays. No. The Rays win a lot. <laughs> like, a lot. Like, considering how little they spend and that there are 20 fans in the ballpark most nights and that they play in a mausoleum and ownership is trying to move them to basically anywhere other than St. Petersburg. And yet they keep winning. And I don't think anybody actually hates the Rays. It would feel bad. It would feel very weird to hate the Rays, actually. So to me, it's much more about like, the the footprint of a team like the Yankees, which even as somebody who grew up a Yankee fan, grew up in New York, my parents are from the Bronx. I, I get it. I would probably be a Yankee hater too if I were uh, if I were not somebody who hates all thirty teams equally. Right. Yeah, that's well documented. I'm glad you clarified that for everybody who might be new to who you are and what you're all about. You do hate all thirty teams equally. Uh, I think the thing for me with the Dodgers that maybe kind of just have that realization last night was like they they overtook the Giants for first place in the NL West for the first time since I think April, and just the the reaction. I, I like the Dodgers TV booth by the way. I think Joe Davis and and Oral and that that whole crew that, that's a great crew, but it was just so over the top. It's like you guys have been here so many times before. Like you're celebrating like you're in first place for the first time in ten years. Like something about it was just rubbing me the wrong way. And I started thinking about being a kid and how annoying it was when the Yankees would just go get everybody and then win every year. They would dominate free agency. They'd take over trades. And that's what the Dodgers have become. They they have become the evil empire for the the current generation of young baseball fans, which you know I'm sure will earn me a whole bunch of, of shade from Dodgers fans on Twitter. But hey, I probably deserve it anyway. Uh, let's talk about some non-playoff topics, though, because I think there are a few interesting things going on with teams that are not playing deep into October. We did expect Cleveland to be a team that could contend in the AL Central this year, even though they traded away Francisco Lindor. And now that we're several months removed from that deal, we've seen how Lindor's 2021 has played out. 
Do you look back at that trade a little differently now and think maybe they didn't botch that quite as much as many of us thought they did when it happened? No, no change whatsoever. <laughs> uh, I mean, it would be irresponsible. One, we're so little time into the deal. Two, you know, it's process versus results, right? What did the you know for both sides? You know, what did what did the Mets believe they were getting? What did they have reason to believe they were getting in Lindor? And what did they have reason to believe that they were giving up? And in Cleveland's case, they just didn't have a lot of market for Lindor. I think Cleveland, you know, that return felt a little bit light. But I think I wrote at the time, and I certainly hope I made it clear at the time also, that a lot of this was just they probably needed to trade him a year earlier or even half a year earlier. And the pandemic certainly blew any possibility of that up. Pandemic probably adversely affected the trade market for him even this past winter. And, you know, I also think it's fair to look at what they sent to Cleveland. Ahmed Rosario is turning into a much better player. I think he's getting to play regularly. They're not screwing around with his playing time or his position. After about the first couple of weeks or so, he got off to a slow start. Um, he's hitting well over 300 for since I would say early May or so. Um, he's been on fire since the summer began. Uh, but we knew that. I mean, I think Mets, the Mets knew that. They knew he'd probably be better somewhere else. Um, so I think reassessing this deal because Francisco Lindor has had a bad year is probably is deeply unfair to the Mets because nobody had any, nobody expected Lindor to have a bad year. Nobody had any reason to expect Lindor to have a bad year. And he just did. And I'm sure next year he'll be completely fine. Obviously, that's that is a year covered by the extension to which they signed him. But still, I think Francisco Lindor will just go back to being Francisco Lindor next year. Yeah, that's been my expectation, too, even though the shortened season was a step back for Lindor, too. I thought that was an easy rebound situation that he was walking into. I wonder how much of this is just getting used to a new league and a new home park and just a, a new environment too. Uh, aside from getting that big extension, you know, that's, that's a thing we see players. Sometimes they try to earn every dollar of that extension in the first week that they get it. Right. I think that's a, a little bit of a, a thing that can happen too. But the bigger thing here, I think with Cleveland is what's next for them. I and mean, this is a year where Shane Bieber's missed a ton of time with an injury. I don't know if we're going to see him pitch again this season. I don't know if the offseason even holds surgery for him. I think that's a possibility. It seems like one of their their best moves, one of their necessary moves as an organization is to strongly consider trading Jose Ramirez, who's probably one of the more underrated stars in the game right now. Yes, well they should have tra- they should have traded him already. I mean, that's I think it's the bottom line. This is a bit of an in for a penny in for a pound situation. I just don't understand trading Lindor and not trading they were probably not contenders once Lindor was gone. And they're not contenders now that Lindor is gone. Um, and that's not saying anything about whether they did well or poorly in the trade, but it's just the expected drop-off in production um, from Lindor to whoever ended up replacing him. They got nothing basically out of Andres Jimenez. Um, now they're getting production out of Ahmed Rosario, but it's not making up for what was lost. And the fact that they also just didn't upgrade really anywhere else on the roster uh, – and they did some things right. Like I'm glad I know Bobby Bradley hasn't been good. I'm not terribly shocked they never rated him that highly, but I'm also really glad they gave him the opportunity. They should be doing stuff like that. But their odds of contending this year were reduced after the Lindor trade. And then obviously they've had injuries to the pitching staff that further reduced their odds of contending. And now just you look at the roster next year and it doesn't look much better. Um yeah, I think they should be trading Ramirez. And it doesn't mean trading him for a bunch of A-ball prospects, but I do think they should be trying to trade him 
not so much just to get younger, but maybe to try to fill multiple holes for the longer term. Even if you know you're not getting a player as good as Ramirez, a single player as good as Ramirez in return, they have a couple of gaps to fill. And that's another club that's they've they've had some trouble um, developing players. I had somebody, a friend of mine who scouted their system, asked, you know, who was the last good homegrown Cleveland major league hitter, you know, a hitting prospect who came up through their system and had success in the majors. And right, it's been a while. I mean, um, yeah, Lindor and Ramirez are the, the last right? two. Right, that's the guys. I, I was just stopping myself because like, did I forget some? I don't think I forgot somebody. You know, it's a lot of Brad Zimmers and Tyler Naquins and these guys are, no, you need, they're going to have to do better on that side or they're going to have to nail a trade. They're going to have to put Jose Ramirez out there and get a guy who becomes, God, just go get a corner bat. I mean, the fact they can't develop a corner bat or haven't, I should say, developed a corner bat in a while that is kind of an indictment because those are the guys they're they should be easier to develop and and they should be easier to acquire and trade yeah they did the hard part by finding two star level infielders and developing them i mean lindor wasn't a fine based on where they drafted him i'd say ramirez is more of the development success story of the two absolutely because no one expected him to be this good back when he entered the organization closest he ever was he made my just missed list on a top 100 one year and honestly, the reason why I knew a couple of um, I knew a front office exec and I knew a couple of scouts who really liked him, but he just never performed. And it's like at some point, right, there's got to be some production. And he was always so young. I mean, I give Cleveland credit. I think they saw they obviously believed in him to continue promoting him and continue giving him playing time. Even when he didn't produce, he was very young and that was rewarded. And we should, you know, we're such a reactionary industry, society, world. Um, you know, give them credit for being so patient with him. That is a good job they did on the development side. It's just we're they're in a bit of a drought right now. Yeah, not enough consistency in that process over the last five years or so. Let's go over to the Royals for a moment. Adalberto Mondesi is back, and he's playing third base because they got this guy, Bobby Witt Jr., who's going to come up and eventually Ooh. play shortstop. Yeah, I don't know if you've heard of him, Keith. No. No, never heard of him. So it's pretty interesting. They're trying to find a way to make all the pieces fit. I mean, I think there have been some pretty unusual comments from Dayton Moore about how they don't necessarily expect Mondesi to be an everyday player in the future. That was pretty bizarre. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Doesn't increase trade value, doesn't you know build a better relationship between front office and player. Uh, but Mondesi at third base, I actually think, seems like it could be a long-term solution to let everyone they have in the organization play together someday. That'd be That could work. Do you see him as a long-term building block in Kansas City? I know Mondesi is a polarizing player because of the the high K rate and the low walk rate, but I feel like people need to just focus more on what he can do when he's healthy instead of nitpicking the things that he doesn't do well. If he is not a shortstop, I think he needs to be somewhere else. To me, he's his value is as a shortstop. This guy's not going to get on base enough to be a third baseman. He may not get on base enough to be an everyday second baseman, uh, but he's got to be playing somewhere in the middle of the field. I guess you could always talk center field with him too, right? Because of his speed. But I mean, my God, he's at it again this year. One walk and 43 plate appearances. In his the one season where he played the most, uh, you know, it's, last year wasn't his fault. He played a full season in the pandemic year. He drew 11 walks and 233 plate appearances. The year before that, 19 walks in 443 plate appearances, the one full healthy-ish season he's had in the majors. Still didn't qualify for the batting title that year, but it's close enough. 51 career major league walks in over 1,200 plate appearances. This is what he is, right? I know he's 25 and got players of that age, sometimes players even older, do improve. But 
you know, this this is who he's not only is this who he is, this is who he's always been. I have talked too much, I feel like, about the way that he was developed and the because I, I used to see because he was here in Wilmington and I would watch him and I think this kid is never going to learn the strike zone. He's never going to become a disciplined hitter because they had him doing things like trying to bunt more often to get his speed to play and it just didn't work. And you're seeing the results of that. Maybe he could go somewhere else and turn it around. I have a feeling it's not going to happen in Kansas City. And it sounds like they think so too. And if they're saying he's not going to play regularly, and I think they're also like a little bit over the fact that he, he does get hurt a lot, which is unfortunate because he's very talented. But, you know, he, like I said, he, he is who we thought he was. And that's probably going to mean he goes to play somewhere else. Maybe someone else gets a bargain somewhere. But he should be somewhere else where he gets to play shortstop. He's going to be so much more valuable. It's probably at least eight teams where you look at what they've got at shortstop and say Mondesi's clearly better. And it's probably even a longer list than that, where it's more of a debate and you move the guy and you know make the pieces fit. Would you trade for him right now based on what you've seen? Because what I see when I look at Mondesi, I see Javier Baez plate discipline with Trey Turner speed, and that's pretty intriguing to me because that can still play. It's harder to get behind a player like you described, than a player with Javi Baez plate discipline and Javi Baez power, mm-hmm. right? That speed is just always going to be a bit less valuable because he's on base so much less. This is before this year. He's got a 381 on base percentage right now because he's hitting for average. But this is a sub 300 on base percentage guy. Always has been. Um, and so, well, I mean, speed's nice, but mm, can't steal first base. I know it's just a cliche, but how valuable is that speed if he's making so many outs? You know, he's an eight or nine hole hitter. So he's got to go somewhere where he can play shortstop. You asked what I trade for. Yes, absolutely. I would trade something for him. something of value for him. I would not just take him. Um, he's not going to make a lot of money because he's got all this broken service time and because his production's not been very good. And I think you could probably crush him in arbitration. Um, but he'd have two years left. And I might even bring him in and say, you know, we'll we'll guarantee the two years rather than let's not have a bad arbitration hearing. We're going to have you in and we're going to give you the everyday shortstop job for the next two years. And here's a two-year contract. So this is it. You know, you've got the job. You're getting paid. You don't have to worry just about trying to pad your short-term numbers. We're trying to build for something for the longer term here. That's probably better for the player because he could be a if, if he, okay, he's hitting 366 now, maybe he'll just have a good enough superficial season that it won't matter, but he could have been a non-tender after this year. So if he could go somewhere and just know he's got a job, it's like, we're focusing long-term here. And then maybe you could work with him on just, just even tiny improvements to the plate discipline. Uh, you know, then there's something there, right? I, I, I never want to give up on a player with this much talent. I think that is a mistake when you walk away from a player with this much talent. But sometimes they just need to get to another organization. I mean, I think that's true of Ahmed Rosario, too. Mm-hmm. I just it clearly wasn't going to happen with the Mets, whether it was particular personalities or an organizational issue. Maybe it was him. Maybe the way he was just moved around. I don't know. But he's been better since he left. I think that's probably not a coincidence. Yeah, I think if you took him and traded him to a team like Cincinnati, where Jose Barrero could be the long-term shorts that we talked about him, I think, two weeks ago now. Kyle Farmer's holding that job now, but you put him on a team like Cincinnati where they don't need him to be top of the order or middle of the order. They can pretty clearly place him bottom third of the order there. He can be the everyday shortstop. 
that could work really well. Or you could go to a team in a longer rebuild if they have that kind of multiple year view of him, a place like Pittsburgh or Baltimore. Like those teams are always yeah. looking for talent in general. So I, I'm on the side that thinks he probably does get moved just because of the general conversation around him. Even the stuff they've said publicly is just so strange that I don't really don't really understand how you'd keep him long term if that's how you actually feel about him as a player. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job Job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Let's get to a few assorted prospect-related items. Uh, Kiebert Ruiz up for the Nationals and uh, I think you wrote about this, of course, at the time of the trade. But I, I think with Ruiz, maybe because they had a, a great young catcher in Los Angeles with Will Smith, there was no path for him to be an everyday guy there. You know, even with Universal DH possibly coming, right? It didn't make sense for Ruiz to stay there. So he was a good trade ship for them. And I wonder if people are just not as excited about him as they should be relative to some of the things that were happening in the upper levels of the minor leagues. He added a lot of power. Triple A this year, 21 homers in just 72 games. Like, I'm actually pretty amazed to see that much power for a guy that's always done a really good job putting balls in play the way that Ruiz has. I think a lot of the conversation about Ruiz comes down to why were the Dodgers so willing to give him up? Because they were talking about him in trades for two years. Dodgers will deny that, but I have that, I have that enough from multiple other teams. Um, and why wouldn't they, right? They had Will Smith in the majors and they have Diego Cartaya, who looks like a superstar coming up behind him. So trade from strength. Sure. Makes perfect sense. And Ruiz before this year definitely was underproducing relative to his tools. And there were enough questions about him defensively and he wasn't hitting for the power he was supposed to be hitting for. Like I kind of got it. I was fairly conservative on him. He went to AAA this year and he did everything you wanted him to do. So, okay, now he's here, right? That's, that Maybe that doesn't answer every question, but it should answer a lot of them. Maybe that's why they did trade him. Maybe it's why they were able to trade him for the kind of return they got for him. But I think Heber Ruiz is really good. I don't even think he has to be that good behind the plate. I think he's going to hit and hit for power. He's always been a high contact guy. I've always thought there was power in there, but he just didn't show game power. Maybe because he was very young relative to his levels. But I've seen the power myself, and I had enough other people saying to me they thought he was going to come into power. Like he could be a below average defensive catcher, but who's above average at hitting for contact, hitting for power, getting on base. And that makes him maybe an occasional all-star that works. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 
Yeah, he's not he's not a Dodger anymore. So just set aside. Well, the Dodgers were really willing to trade him. Well, he's not there anymore. So and he's in the majors now. So it's on him, right? He will if he produces. Then every then the question is, why the hell were the Dodgers so willing to trade him? Do you think sometimes there is a an overreaction to let's say the smart teams trading a player away though? Like sometimes there's a roster crunch. Sometimes good smart teams are going to trade good players away because they're going to get good players back or they at least think they're getting good players back. I, I sometimes wonder if, if at least when I'm looking at trades, if, if the Rays trade somebody away, well, clearly the Rays know something I don't. It's, like, well, it's always a thing, right? Wasn't that a thing with Atlanta? If Atlanta trades a pitching prospect, they know something that was in the 90s. Sure, and like teams obviously know as much about the players as anybody. They know more about their own players than anybody else would, but there are reasons mm-hmm. you would trade a good young player and those reasons in this case, Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. I mean, you're trying to win a World Series. The the catcher you don't need to get you another World Series is every bit worth it if you actually pull it off. Yeah, why wouldn't? Of course, you know, you got to give something to get something, right? You know, nobody's getting Max Scherzer and Trey Turner for nothing. It's almost like we come into this era now where teams are so they clutch their prospects like pearls, and so they can't. We can't, we can't give up a prospect. How, how could you even think of saying? But in a previous era, teams gave up prospects all the time, maybe too often. There could be some middle ground here. Um, and in the case of the Dodgers, the Dodgers, I'm sure, I mean, ask the Dodgers specifically about this trade, but from talking to people there over the, over the years, I am sure that internal conversation was, we have a catcher ahead of, of Kiebert and we have a catcher behind him in our, on our depth chart, in our system. We love Josiah Gray, but we have other pitching. And and he'd been banged up this year. And Andre Jackson has taken a nice step forward. And we've seen glimpses from Mitch White. I don't know if he'll ever really stay healthy enough, but it's elite stuff. And I'm sure they also said, we're pretty good at this drafting and developing thing. We can probably do it again. So I'm sure that was a big part of the conversation around trading those guys and saying they're good. We're fine giving up value because we think we can continue to build. We have other depth. We can continue to build. Um, I don't think this is an example of like, you know, the pump and dump that teams like the Yankees are often accused of doing by, um, by other teams. Oh, they just pump their guys up because they talk to the media about them or they hype them. Every next Yankee prospect is the next, he's the next top of the rotation guy. He's the next big slugger. And then they quick trade those guys before anyone realizes that it's not true. Whether that is accurate about the Yankees or not is a separate issue. (laughs) That really does not apply in this case to the Dodgers. These were two really good prospects. They gave them up to get a multiple time Cy Young award winner who's probably going to the Hall of Fame. And Trey Turner might be one of the 10 best players in baseball. Yeah, Turner kind of in the Jose Ramirez bucket of guys that, you know, if you don't follow that team or you don't play fantasy, you might not realize just how good he really is. I think people are going to yeah. see that on full display now that he's with the Dodgers. Uh, it's not like the Nats were, were ghosts in October or anything, but I just think the appreciation for Trey Turner is going to go up another level now that this trade has happened. But I think, you know, the prospect clutching thing and, and, and the way people react, the way there's more information about prospects than ever before. I think mm-hmm. the way fans uh, read about them and, and hear about these guys for years before they arrive changes their perception and, and kind of makes fans want to cling to prospects as well. It's what makes something like you know the Jose Barrios deal so surprising to see Austin Martin and Simeon Woods Richardson get flipped in that trade, right? That was a big part of, I think, why that trade was jarring. I know this is true. That was a case of the Blue Jays getting a long look at both of those guys really for the first time and saying they're not as good as we thought they were. 
so we're willing to trade them. And I think in the Twins case, it was, hey, this is a buy low opportunity, especially on Austin Martin, because Martin's swing is not right right now. He's not the prospect he seemed to be when he was coming out of Vanderbilt. And whether that's due to the hand injury that he suffered in May or something he did himself this offseason, he's still way more inside out than he should be. But that's not how he used to hit. And I'm sure the Twins are saying, again, it's a buy low opportunity. We can get him in and we can work with him and hopefully restore him to the player he once was to take that kind of risk. But if you're a Twins fan, you want to say, why would the Blue Jays be this quick to trade their number one pick, fifth overall from last year's draft? Yeah, turns out there is an actual reason. So sometimes that is justified, but also we can explain this. At least I can explain as an outsider who's not actually with either of these organizations, but I can point and say, yeah, I know why these two guys were suddenly available in trade. So speaking of the Twins, Joe Ryan just made his big league debut this week. And on paper, I've never actually seen him pitch live, but on paper, he's a really interesting prospect because he misses a ton of bats. Uh, the fan graph scouting grade that I see out there is a 60 fastball. And when I see a 60 fastball grade, my mind immediately thinks, oh, it's got to be like 96 plus. It's not with Joe Ryan. It's a, a different kind of profile. Uh, have you had a chance to see him before? And, and what's your overall assessment of Ryan and what he might be? Did you say Fangraphs had a 60 grade on his fastball? Yeah, I saw a 60 on his fastball. Yeah, I don't agree with that at all. And I like Joe Ryan, but that's not, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like that, because it's not. It's that he's got incredible deception. Um, and he's got good command also. And so hitters really don't see the ball out of his hand, but I would not put that, maybe this is more of a semantic argument, but I would not consider that part of the fastball grade to me, the deception, because the deception is really there on all of his pitches, but because the deception is there, it really allows him to do some things with his fastball that most guys are not able to do. The worry I always have with guys like that, and I like Joe Ryan for what he is. I think he's a big league starter, maybe for a long time, probably more towards the back end of a rotation, but a big league starter that's worth a lot of money. But I do worry about guys like that, particularly with the rabbit ball that they're still using in the big leagues, whether they admit it or not. Um, he could be homer prone. Right, That trick works until it doesn't. And when it doesn't, and your fastball is kind of ordinary in terms of velocity and secondary characteristics, it ends up in the seats. I am not saying I think that's going to happen to Ryan. I think he's the guy who's going to be okay. But it's there. right? That possibility is there. And you have to be aware of them. I'm sure the Twins are aware of that. The Rays were certainly aware of that. The Rays believed it would work, though. Everybody I ever talked to at the Rays, they all were like, Joe Ryan, people don't talk about Joe Ryan enough. We got other guys, you know, they're sexier, they throw harder, bigger, stronger, whatever. Joe Ryan is going to be the one who gets there and pitches for a long time. He just won't do it. You know, he's not bumping 98. He doesn't have some knockout breaking ball. But he's got such a track record of getting people out, and they thought the deception was real and that it would continue to last. And I'm going to go with that until, again, that trick works until it doesn't. Yeah, I think about a profile like that, too, and I I think about how old he is. He's 25 already. I don't expect a guy at 25 to pick up extra velo, so you're not banking on on that. You're not expecting an off-season of you know training with the weighted ball or something to come back and add two or three ticks. It, maybe a secondary pitch gets better, and that could be something that unlocks a little more for him, makes him a little less fastball dependent in the long run, but uh, at least a good back-end starter. That's a nice get for the Twins as well and a guy mm-hmm. to get to watch here uh, over the final month of the season. I had this thought earlier this week, and it was based on just several good teams being really good at leaning into every possible rule with roster management. Maybe it's even manipulation in some ways. But you know, we have a CBA negotiation looming in the offseason, 
And one of the thoughts I had was, what if we made rosters a little bit bigger? Like the fear in the past has been that teams would parade reliever after reliever out there and every game would take four hours, right? That was probably the concern, the number one concern about a 30-man big league roster. But if teams are going to leverage options and IL rules and, and different things to basically have a functioning 30-man roster anyway and just put players through the miserable experience of being on and off the roster on a loop. Like if you're if you're a fringe big league player, it's not a great spot to be in over the course of the season. Being optioned half a dozen times over the course of a season would suck. So is there a path forward to have larger rosters in baseball if you also bring some sort of restrictions on the frequency of transactions? To me, rather than expanding rosters, which just invites different a different kind of abuse, you charge teams, essentially. You put a tax on it. And by that, I mean you pay the players, right? If a player is up and down six times over the course of the season, you you say, hey, every time he's up, it's 10-day salary. I don't care if he was up for one game. It's 10-day salary. For the union, I would absolutely push for this. And then you'll st- then teams will stop doing this. They will consider a co- player we call up. We will only call up guys who we think we're going to use for a longer period of time. Now, there's a downside to that. The guy who comes up and gets a cup of coffee for two days and goes back down and is never heard of again, maybe he doesn't get that call up. And that, that would be a shame on a different level. But in terms of limiting roster churn and limiting the way that major league teams do actually exploit these players, these, you know, zero service time, very low service time players with options left and run them up and down, which I know we don't, you know, typically the conversation is about the way the major league teams exploit minor league players, but they do exploit major league players too. Um, You would see that drastically reduced because this, the roster churn is essentially costless to them. It is a a frictionless transaction. And the way that you um, stop that, if you don't like that, behavior is you disincentivize it by putting a cost on it. And so I don't know exactly what that solution would look like, but that'd be, to me, that's a simple one is just saying any call up is a minimum of 10 days salary. And there are already rules in place that essentially, you know, limit teams from sending a guy down, bringing him back up three days later, et cetera. And if they do that because of an injury, then I believe he at least gets credit for the service time for the days he was down. He doesn't get paid for that, for those Days in between, I think that's still correct. I could be dating myself back to when I was with the Blue Jays, but I believe that's still the rule. You don't get paid, but you get the service time. Well, you could say, well, now he gets paid too. If you call him back up, he gets those three days of back pay also. Same thing. You'll reduce roster churn. I would rather do that. And it's not that I don't necessarily want more big leaguers because more players is good, right? More, More big leaguers, more guys making big league salaries. That's great. But we all know what's going to happen. And I don't want a 15 man pitching staff. I'm, I'm kind of over that. You don't want to see teams bullpenning every fifth day all season? Oh, my God. Well, they'd be doing it three days out of five if it gives them the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't be the most uh, aesthetically pleasing way to watch games. No, at that point, we'd have to start talking about no mid-inning pitching changes or something like that. Or I, It's just a different – I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Right. The first and easiest thing to do is say roster sizes are set, but you're going to spend – if you're going to try to play the roster churn game – we're going to charge you for it. You're going to pay the players more. And and who doesn't want that other than owners? Everybody else should be on board with that. Anything that puts more owner money in the pockets of players is a good thing. Right. And I, I feel like if you put restrictions like that in place, 
wouldn't teams just back off probably the mid-tier free agents a little bit? Like someone, someone in the player pool is going to lose money in all of this, right? It's going to be mm-hmm. the the veterans that are not stars in free agency. It's those players. It's the guys that we often see get non-tendered and end up getting a one-year deal somewhere else that are being non-tendered. Those types of players, I feel like, are the guys that will ultimately pay for players at the bottom of the roster getting compensated more fairly. Yeah, that's, there's always going to be a loser. That is always true of any... I mean, this is, this is an economics question. Any change in tax policy, regulations, subsidies, etc., where you are essentially trying to change behavior through economic incentives, you will always create winners and losers. You hope that your changes create more for the winners than they do for the losers or create more winners in total than they do losers or maybe create more total value for the winners than they do for the losers. There are different ways to measure this. My hope in what I've described is, yeah, some players would lose out. Those guys who get called up for a day maybe don't get called up anymore. Maybe they do and they get paid... 10 days instead of for one or two days. That's That works too. Um, but in total, we'd be seeing more money transferred from owners to players, and it would still go to, to the players at the bottom end of the salary scale. And that's why I think my idea would work in some form. Maybe it's not exactly as I described, but I think something like that. Yeah, it seems workable, at least in, in some form. And among the many, many things that I'm sure will be on the table at some point as those negotiations continue, I'm just hoping hoping, hoping, hoping that this doesn't run all the way into spring training. I hope we don't have that kind of looming cloud into February and possibly into March. I, I'm fairly confident it will all get resolved and there will be a 2022 season. I'm not in the the doomsday. There's not going to be baseball next year camp. Some people are, are like firmly over there. I think it's the kind of thing that will take a little longer than we'd like it to, but it's going to get done nonetheless. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. I'm a pessimist. I'm just, <laughs> this, this year, 18 months has just made me even more. You know, I used to be a cynic and now I'm just a pessimist. You've fallen down uh, one st- uh, one rung on the ladder. It's, uh, yep. uh, it's, it's 20, 2020 and 2021 have done to us. Have we tried turning humanity off and turning it back on again? Take out the cartridge, blow into it, put the cartridge back in? Yes. Yes. We should. Somebody should try that. Preferably soon. Yeah, please. Any any time now, if uh, if you don't mind. We are going to go. But before we do, Keith, tell us about your guest from this week's episode of The Keith Law Show. Dr. Sian Bylock, uh, who is the president of Barnard College um, and also the author of Choke, which is a tremendous book. Actually, I had a couple of people in the industry text me that they wanted to read it. They thought it seemed really interesting. It is, actually. And I like the fact that she takes something that we typically describe as an intangible and breaks it down into, or at least breaks apart, the tangible component of it. Yeah, definitely check that episode out. Uh, you can hear me on Rates and Barrels and the other fantasy baseball shows that we do here as well. New subscribers have a pretty good deal out there right now. 50% off subscriptions at theathletic.com slash baseball show. So it's a great time to pick up a subscription if you don't already have one on Twitter. He's at Keith Law. I am at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Monday. Have a great holiday weekend. <laughs>